One Week Season. season fam welcome to the week 12 edition of the ows angles podcast i am your host i am your guest i am jm to win throw this baby on 1.5 x speed and let's get started we are starting a little bit late this week so thanks for hanging in there with me on that kind of a crazy week with thanksgiving we've had eight adults and six kids under the age of four in a giant house together and obviously juggling the holidays and content and dfs and everything else that goes with this crazy week uh i expected to have this done a couple hours ago but william has not been sleeping well and the only way to keep him settled the last couple hours was to watch nature documentaries with him. So uh, I am now done with done with bear documentaries and on to the week 12 slate. Before we dive into the week 12 slate, which of course is a very interesting week 12 slate, I don't want to spend too much time on this because you guys already know. And if you're not taking advantage of this, of this at this point, by this point, there's probably not much more I can do for you. But two things, Black Friday sale, OWS Black Friday is the code, 50% off all Marketplace courses. My strongest recommendation would be to check out the roster construction bundle, which we built this year. It's $195 worth of courses. It's $149 with the bundle, and then it's 50 percent off that. So like $74.50 for $195 worth of courses. As always, we build those courses so that they're worth way more than what we charge for them as well. And the way that we put together that roster construction bundle this year was we basically wanted to take all of the things that we talk about in terms of strategy and roster construction and what goes beyond finding good players and putting them together on winning rosters and kind of put together a whole bundle off of that from uh, several of our contributors. So very much worth checking out. 50% off of that, 50% off of Inner Circle for the rest of the season, uh, which is we rest of season price is 39 bucks. So 1950, if you're not in Inner Circle, you can find that throughout the scroll, throughout the player grid. And then last thing, of course, is OWS missions. We have basically like nine days left, 10 days left for you to complete OWS missions and earn entries into the really cool drawings we're doing in week 15. I won't spend any more time on that. Go to the missions page in the menu. Okay. Week 12. So before we dive into the bottom up build, let's take a moment to just talk about this slate. And it's a, a hyper unique slate, which is not unusual, right? Most slates have some elements that make them particularly unique. But this particular slate, not only is it really unique, but it's unique in such a way that it gives us a great opportunity to apply a lot of the things we talk about from a strategy standpoint. And here's what I mean. One of the things that we hammer all the time is that DFS is not about picking players. DFS is not about maximizing points. DFS is about maximizing paths to first place. Oftentimes, that means if everybody is on, let's do some, let's, let's create like a very simple example here. Let's say that everybody's on a play that 
we'll pretend that we know everything that's going to play out, okay? Let's say that everyone's on a play that's going to succeed 25% of the time for a 4x salary multiplier. And let's say that this player is 25% owned, maybe even 20% owned, right? So the math works out just fine to where it's it's technically plus EV or right in that range to where you can play this player and expect that this player is going to be profitable over time. But right below that player is a guy who is going to succeed 20% of the time, is going to go for 4x's salary 20% of the time, and is going to be 5% owned. Or there is a player who is only going to go for 4x or better his salary 15% of the time, maybe even 12% of the time, but that player will be 2% owned, and when that player goes for 4x their salary, they have a shot at going for 5x, 5.5x, 6x, 6.5x, 7x their salary. And people will flood inevitably toward that play that is just slightly better than the other plays or that play that is a bit safer than the other plays. And we've talked a lot, especially this year, about the industry setup and the DFS player psychology that leads to people flocking toward those slightly safer plays in tournaments. And what we often talk about is basically finding ways to either build in higher certainty than the field by building around a game or building around player blocks where you don't have to worry as much about which player in the player block produces so much as you know that you're setting yourself up for a larger chunk of your salary to hit that 4x salary multiplier or by just finding that game that maybe is a little bit overlooked, that player who is a little bit overlooked and betting on that game, betting building rosters around that game, betting on that player and finding ways to basically exploit the over-certainty of the field. So on a week like this, we only have 10 games and we don't have any teams with a Vegas implied team total over 28. We only have four teams with a Vegas implied team total of 25.25 or higher. And as we explored in the NFL Edge, there are a lot of games on this slate with a relatively broad range of outcomes. So we actually saw this on the Thanksgiving slate. We talked about this leading up to the Thanksgiving slate, that the best way to attack the Thanksgiving slate was to just simply tell different stories than the field was telling. On a three-game slate, that kind of makes things really easy for you because there are fewer levers to pull. So in other words, if everyone is pulling this Ezekiel Elliott lever, that basically tells you, okay, well, this is not the story I want to tell. Maybe maybe this Cowboys game plays out in such a way that Zeke is the highest scoring player on the slate, but everyone is overconfident in that outcome, so I simply won't tell that story. In fact, I will instead look for a story that will be true if that story ends up being false. Now, again, on a three-game slate, it's a lot easier to just see exactly which levers to pull to do something different from what everybody else is doing. That's a little bit more difficult when we get to a 10-game slate. But that same type of thinking, if you read all of the content leading up to Thanksgiving, which most of you did because the Thanksgiving slate is obviously one that most of us play, you know that all those things that we talked about leading up to that slate, basically you saw all the things we talked about leading up to that slate play out on the slate itself to where simply telling different stories in the field was telling and being willing to embrace some additional risk was all that was really re required in order to move past a large chunk of the field on that slate. So similarly this week, now there are going to be spots 
that are popular that you're going to have on your roster. So Chris Godwin, Debo Samuel, Cooper Cup, Devontae Adams. Currently, those are like four of the five highest projected wide receivers. You might decide that you want a Tom Brady, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski stack. You might decide that you want Debo Samuel. You might decide that you want Cooper Cup and Devontae Adams. That's okay. It's okay to take one of these higher owned players, but there has to be a place or two places on your roster. Optimally, one place with like that you're covering with three or four spots, right? Like a game that you're betting around differently than everybody else. And like a player that's just like doing something different from everybody else to give you kind of those couple levers you're pulling that can move you past what we talked about in Inner Circle on Tuesday, what we called that clumped up school of fish, that if you're wrong, you stay behind that clumped up school of all the rosters that are doing kind of the same thing. But if you're right, you move past that whole school of fish, you slingshot past everybody who's doing the same thing. And that's where that all the way to the left or all the way to the right philosophy comes into play. And as we talked about on that small slate, the Thanksgiving slate, the all the way to the left or all the way to the right mindset comes more fully into play in a three-game slate because you really just have to do something different from everybody else. Whereas in large field play, ownership gets, or not large field play, but larger slates, ownership gets spread out enough that you're not necessarily going to finish in last place if you're not finishing in first place because that school of fish is less clumped together. But you have to find something that can potentially slingshot you past what everybody else is doing. And it'll, it will be important to look for those things this week. So one of the things that I will be looking to do this week more than I do in other main slates is directly exploit ownership. And what I mean by that is if you guys have listened to me, if you've listened to me for long enough, you know that my typical process doesn't weigh ownership super heavily for a variety of factors that we won't get deep into right now, but particularly that I'm kind of building in a bubble and I end up seeing games differently than the field and end up having very unique and different rosters from the field just based off of that. So I don't typically have to worry too much, especially in the tournaments I play in, whether that's 10,000 or fewer entries, 5,000 or fewer entries, or what I've been focused on over the last couple of months, like 500 and fewer entries. I don't need to worry that much about specific ownership on individual players so much as making sure that my roster as a whole is different enough with enough different levers pulled than the field that I have a clear shot at first place if things end up working out in my favor. Or said differently, that I am relying as much on the fact that I am embracing variants or doing things different from the field as I am on just getting good plays onto a roster. So getting good plays onto a roster that are different from the good plays the field is using or that are built differently than the way the field is building. But this slate in particular, just because there is, I guess I'll say it like this. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about the value of certainty especially in small field tournaments, but not just in small field tournaments. So the good example was a couple of weeks ago when I had the Tom Brady plus Chris Godwin plus Mike Evans stack and Devontae Adams plus Marquez Valdez Scantling. Marquez Valdez Scantling plus Devontae Adams had gone for more than 4x their combined salary, more than one every three games since the start of last year. As we know, DraftKings prices players in such a way that they typically go for 4x their salary once every four games. So getting two spots correct at a higher certainty bet is a great way to go. Getting Brady plus Evans plus Godwin on a week when Antonio Brown and Rob Gronkowski were out, we play out that slate 100 times and that's going to be a high certainty bet. So for me, my starting point is typically high certainty. 
And then I think about how I'm putting together the roster. And then I can pay attention to whether or not it's different enough from what the field is doing and if I have to make additional changes from there. But on this particular week, and I guess this is what I've been building toward and and getting to, on this particular week, certainty is less prevalent. And the field, as always, is going to overrate the certainty of certain spots. So ownership will still congregate in certain spots. So we could go through this list of Chris Godwin. Uh, and, and to be clear, like I like the Chris Godwin play quite a bit this week, but Chris Godwin has finished under 20 points in all but three games this year. It wouldn't be shocking if he's super highly owned and ends up putting 14 points or 12.7 points or 16.2 points. Those are all scores that he's had this year on the board this week when everybody is treating him as this super high confidence bet. What's more, Mike Evans is currently projected. Now, this could change, obviously, but Mike Evans is currently projected for about half of Chris Godwin's ownership. Now, this is taking lots of different ownership projections across the industry and kind of getting a sense of what different ownership projections are seeing at this point. And again, by late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, we have a much clearer snapshot of these things. But why, if this ends up holding, why would we expect Chris Evans to get outscored by Mike Evans get outscored by Chris Godwin two out of every three times that we played out this game. That doesn't make any sense, right? So we want to look for spots like that to say, look, I'm not predicting that Mike Evans is going to have a better game than Chris Godwin. I am just letting the math come to me and letting the math work in my favor. Debo Samuel. Now this is just poking holes in things, okay? But Debo Samuel has a game of 16.1 points, a game of 10.2 points, a game of 16.1 points, a game of 11.3 points, a game of 16.4 points. Those are all DraftKings scores that he's put up this year, and he's priced at 7.9K in salary. Now, what's really interesting about Debo Samuel is not that he can fail. Of course he can fail. Players can fail. He can also go for 30, 35, 36 points. What's most interesting about Debo Samuel is that Debo Samuel putting up a tournament winning score. We talked about this in the NFL Edge this week, but it almost has to happen in conjunction with a player from the Vikings putting up a tournament winning score. The Vikings have played all but one game this year within one score. The way that this matchup sets up means that if if one team is disappointing, the other team is probably disappointing. If one team is having a big game on offense, the other team is having a big game on offense. So Debo Samuel could end up being 15, 18, 20% owned. But how many of those rosters are going to bring that back with Justin Jefferson or with Adam Thielen or with Dalvin Cook? The Vikings have a concentrated offense. And if the 49ers are putting up points, the Vikings are almost certainly putting up points as well. We need to be thinking about those things. Devontae Adams is priced at 8.6K. He's got to put up about 34 points for you to really feel great about what he did. If he gets to 28, 29, 30 points, that's that's excellent, right? Raw points matter. But he has to put up about 38 to 40 points to really hurt you for not having had him from a standpoint of where else you could allocate your salary. Well, Devontae Adams is taking on Jalen Ramsey this week, and he's taking on a Rams defense that has only allowed six touchdowns to wide receivers all year. Only the Bills have allowed fewer touchdowns to wide receivers. So will Devontae Adams have a good game? Probably. 
Will he put up 18, 20, 22, maybe even 25 points? Probably that's what he does, right? I mean, that's that's kind of required in order for the Packers to have a solid game is Devontae Adams having a solid game. But will he put up 30 points, 35 points, 40 points? That's going to be really tough for him to do this week. In fact, if he is 15 to 18 to 20 to 25 percent owned, I would feel very comfortable saying that his chances of putting up a 4x, 4.5x salary multiplier game are lower than what his ownership is going to be. Now, that's just my opinion. That's just the way I'm seeing things. But we should be keeping these things in mind and trying to poke holes in this chalk. The last one I'll touch on is Keenan Allen, who is projected pretty highly across the board. And keep in mind what I pointed out in the NFL Edge this week. Keenan Allen, this is a division opponent, has never topped 90 yards against the Broncos in the regular season. The only time he has to give you a a scope of how many times Keenan Allen has played the Broncos. The only time Keenan Allen has topped 90 yards against the Broncos in his career was a playoff game in 2013. Furthermore, he has topped 70 yards once one regular season game in his entire career against the Broncos. Now, this is different personnel over the years, different coaches over the years, but this is worth paying attention to. These things are worth paying attention to, especially when a player is relatively expensive and relatively popular. Let's swing over to quarterback. Now, at quarterback, instead of poking holes in these top guys, let's look at the bottom guys and see who is going overlooked. Devontae Adams and Cooper Cup are among the two highest projected owned players on the slate. Aaron Rodgers and Matthew Stafford are among the two lowest projected owned quarterbacks. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Joe Burrow is one of the lowest, lowest. I mean, there's only 20 quarterbacks on the slate, but Joe Burrow is in the bottom half of ownership projections. Kirk Cousins is in the bottom quarter of ownership projections. Let's look at Cousins. In fact, Kirk Cousins is 6,300. So he needs about 24, 25 points for you to feel great about what you got out of him. And you'd love him to have upside for more than that. Now, keep in mind, the rushing quarterbacks are missing from this slate. So Tyrod Taylor's going to grab some ownership. Cam Newton's going to grab some ownership because those are the rushing quarterbacks remaining. But that also means that, you know, we've seen Brady have some five touchdown games. We've seen Brady go for 35, 40 points, whatever it's been. But the likeliest scenario, you know, Herbert maybe goes for 35 to 40 if everything comes together. And you better build around that game coming together if you're going to say that Herbert puts up that type of score. Tom Brady can go for 35 to 40 if everything comes together. But the likeliest outcome is that all of these popular high-priced quarterbacks end up going for 25 to 30. So if you can get a cheaper guy who can go for 30 points, you're in tremendous shape. Well, Kirk Cousins has a game of 25.04, a game of 25.26, a game of 28.12, a game of 31.52, a game of 28.24. That's half his game's This season, he has gone for 4x or better his salary, including games of 28 and 31, two games of 28 and a game of 31 points. So thinking about the fact that he's going to be one of the lower owned quarterbacks on the slate, thinking about the fact that Debo Samuel is going to be one of the higher owned wide receivers, which is basically betting on a scenario in which the Vikings are putting up points as well. Thinking about the fact that you can go Kirk Cousins plus Justin Jefferson plus Debo Samuel and basically tell the same story that a Debo Samuel roster tells 
while getting way lower Debo Samuel ownership by bundling it all together correctly, keeping these things in mind is going to be very important on a week like this. So again, I'm not necessarily saying, okay, I am betting that Kirk Cousins has a big game here. All I'm saying is the math tells us that this is a profitable play over time. If Justin Jefferson's under 10% owned, if Kirk Cousins is under 5% owned, and we bundle those guys with Debo, we now tell one of the likeliest stories for Debo having a big game, and we do it with significantly lower ownership. We, we basically get something that's going to play out at least once every four times if we played out this game 100 times probably once every three times or once every three and a half times that we would see Cousins plus Jefferson plus Debo go for 4x their combined salary. So let's just say you have a 30% chance of this three-player pairing going for 4x their combined salary. Well, if this block, we know that Cousins is going to be under 3 4% owned, right? So how many rosters then have Cousins plus Jefferson plus Debo, that exact stack? Well, now you're sitting on like a half of 1% owned stack, probably even lower than that, for something that has a 30% chance of happening. We can even lower those numbers, 20% chance of happening. But we've just gone through this and seen that Kirk Cousins puts up these scores way more often than people realize. So again, these are things we need to be paying attention to this week. And lastly, let's go ahead and look at the running back position, where Jonathan Taylor played the Bills last week, one of the top defenses in football. Nobody rostered him. The Bills were missing two of their primary run stoppers, and he ended up having a career game. So what happens? His price goes up. Everybody thinks there's no way that Jonathan Taylor can miss this week. He is playing a defense that no one ever plays running backs against, and he's probably going to be one of the top two or three highest owned running backs on the slate. I'm not saying that Jonathan Taylor is going to fail. I'm not saying that I am predicting that. All I'm saying is that the math works out in such a way that it's probably negative EV to make him a primary focus on builds. Meanwhile, we have players like Daryl Henderson, players like Najee Harris, players like Ty Johnson, Elijah Mitchell, all players that have talked about on in the NFL Edge and the player grid and the scroll, etc., who are projected for about half of Jonathan Taylor's ownership. Will those players go for 4x their salary only a third of the time compared to Jonathan Taylor? Like if we take... A, a, a sample of three times, right? Like Jonathan Taylor is going to out, outproduce his salary two times, and these guys are only going to do it once. That's what this ownership gap is saying. And so paying attention to these things on a week like this where there's less certainty, but the field is still going to embrace what they perceive as certainty and make mistakes as a result is going to give us a big edge on a slate like this. So on this particular slate, I will be paying attention to 
ownership projections in my decision-making process more than I typically do because there is less certainty on this slate. So for example, if the right people had been talking about the 49ers and Vikings game and Kirk Cousins were projected at 8% ownership or 10% ownership and Justin Jefferson were at 15% ownership, then I would be able to say, hey, this is not the game I want to bet on. Let me bet on the Packers-Rams game. Let me bet on one of these other spots, right? But basically just allowing the way that ownership falls this week to dictate where I end up going, recognizing that everything's a lot closer, a lot more bunched up than the field is going to give it credit for. So pay attention to those things this week. Spent a little bit more time on that than I expected to, but let's go ahead and dive into the bottom up build. And actually, we probably don't need to spend too much time on the bottom up build this week, which is great because I'd love to get this podcast in your hands, in your ears, whatever we want to call it. So bottom up build. Starting point for the bottom-up build this week. Now, this is already in the player grid. You can follow along with it there if you want, or you can just listen and be surprised as we move through this. The starting point for me, this should probably not be much of a surprise if you read the NFL Edge this week, is Tyrod Taylor, but with an interesting Tyrod Taylor twist on this build. In that the typical way that people will build a Tyrod Taylor roster. Now, uh, uh, let me back up real quickly. I basically said in the NFL Edge this week that I love Tyrod because no one ever plays him. Everyone just keeps forgetting about him. I expected that to continue to be the case this week. And then once I was going through the Oracle, saw some people mention Tyrod Taylor as one of the higher owned quarterbacks, started looking at ownership projections and saw that thought backed up in different places. And so basically the right people have been talking about Tyrod Taylor this week. And so now finally everybody realizes that he's a good play. So he's going to be a little bit over-owned, but at quarterback, right, everybody only starts one quarterback. So it's it's we rarely see ownership get truly out of hand. And there are different roster construction approaches, different cheap quarterbacks that people are going to be interested in, including Cam Newton. So a lot of different ways that things can shake out to where Tyrod Taylor's ownership shouldn't be prohibitive, Even if he's 6%, 8% owned, even 10% owned, well, you'd still say that his chances of hitting 4x his salary multiplier are higher than that, significantly enough so that you're not really losing ground by playing Tyrod Taylor. Now, that that we should circle back to the earlier discussion to recognize that still looking for the things like Joe Burrow or Kirk Cousins, that can be a huge lever to pull because you can kind of build around that those games in such a way that you're just doing something very different from the field. And recognizing that on a slate with only 10 games on a slate with 10 games, none of which are particularly likely to shoot out. Being able to find that one game that outproduces all the others can set you way ahead of the field. And some of the games that have a good, or some of the offenses that have a good shot at producing such a game are not going to be treated as such. So obviously the Chargers have had a couple times this year where they've just blown past all the other games on the slate. And it looks like the field will probably be building around that game with Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen carrying heavy ownership, Austin Eckler carrying heavy ownership as if they're betting on that happening. But it's just as likely that the Chargers score 24 points and that the Vikings score 34 or that the Bengals score 34 
or 35 or 40 something, or that the Rams score 30 plus points. And so pay attention to these entire offenses that you can build around this week in order to just do something differently than the field and sort of get everything right at once. But Tyra Taylor is still a very interesting play to me this week. And while most people will be pairing him with Brandon Cooks, my thought on Tyra Taylor is, I'll go back to something that Hilo and Zandemir talked about on the Saturday Inner Circle podcast earlier this season. And that was a lot of people roster these high-priced rushing quarterbacks without a stacking partner. Basically saying, well, I can't predict who they're going to throw the ball to, but I know that they're going to get some production with their legs. And so they can have a big game and I don't have to worry about which wide receiver they end up bringing with them. But as Zandemir pointed out, given the price tags on these quarterbacks, these 8K quarterbacks, it's still very hard for them to have the top score on the slate, which is what they need at that price tag. It's hard for them to have the top score on the slate, the top quarterback score on the slate, and not carry at least one wide receiver with them, which means that unless you're in a tournament with a very small number of entries, more than likely, somebody else in the tournament you're in is getting not only that quarterback right, but also the stacking partner right. And so that idea of paying up for these 8K quarterbacks and not bringing a stacking partner is actually suboptimal. We can flip that around, however, on the lower ends of the price range. In other words, if Tyrod Taylor puts up 22 points, 23 points, 24, even 25 points, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's carrying Brandon Cooks, who's about 6K in salary, up to a 20, 22, 25 28-point game. We could very easily, in fact, we saw it just last week. Now, Tyra Taylor rushed for two touchdowns last week. That's not going to happen every week. But just last week, we saw Tyra Taylor get very close to that 20-point mark, while Brandon Cooks did absolutely nothing. So again, not predicting that that will happen, but just saying that the chances of, of Brandon Cooks having a big game aren't directly correlated to the chances of Tyra Taylor producing the type of score you need at his price tag. So Tyra Taylor can put up a, you know, so again, you going back to the example of like the bill of Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson or one of those guys, like Josh Allen can put up 25 points without bringing one of his expensive wide receivers with him. But if Josh Allen puts up 36 points, 38 points, 40 points, which is what you're really hoping for at his price tag, well, he's probably bringing a wide receiver with him. Because it's hard to get 35 to 40 quarterback points without bringing a wide receiver with you. But Tyrod Taylor can easily get to 20, 22, 25 points without Brandon Cooks doing anything. So uh, basically what I like for the Tyrod Taylor build is a Tyrod plus a Jets player build. Now, I touched on this in the player grid as well. Touched on it in the NFL edge as well, I believe, but uh, wanted to kind of talk through it also, just so that you can kind of hear the thoughts laid out verbally. So on this roster, I originally had Tyrod Taylor plus Corey Davis. I actually expected that to be relatively sneaky from a standpoint, and obviously that's going to be a unique stack because most people will, would have Tyrod plus Brandon Cooks plus Corey Davis uh, or you know some other setup that includes another Texans piece plus Corey Davis. Uh, but I expected Corey Davis to be low-owned, right? Elijah Moore had the big game last week, but ownership projections were actually having Corey Davis relatively popular. Uh, whereas Elijah Moore is relatively unpopular. Now, that might change now that Corey Davis has been moved from questionable to doubtful. 
maybe we see Elijah Moore gain some traction here. But the thought for me was that Elijah Moore had the big game last week. People will want to react to that. And Zach Wilson had a great connection with Corey Davis earlier in the year. Corey Davis scored 24 plus points in two of his five full games with Zach Wilson. Apparently, the field was also seeing kind of that whole structure to this offense as well. And again, we're leaning more toward Corey Davis and Elijah Moore. What I have done is I have swapped Corey Davis on this roster for Jamison Crowder. So originally it was Tyrod plus Corey Davis. Now it's Tyrod plus Jamison Crowder. And what this is basically saying is in a game in which Tyrod Taylor is putting up 20 plus DraftKings points, there's probably going to be a Jets pass catcher given their price tags, who is also putting up 20 plus points. So I guess take take out the, including their price tag or given their price tags, uh, because that's 4X salary multiplier was what I was originally going to say, but 20 plus points. So if Tyrod's putting up 20 plus points, the chances of Jameson Crowder or Elijah Moore or Ty Johnson putting up 20 plus points are relatively high. In fact, the chances of one of those guys putting up 20 plus points, if Tyrod puts up 20 plus points, are higher than the chance of Brandon Cooks putting up 20 plus points just because Tyrod put up 20 plus points. So if you didn't follow all of that, I'll say it this way. Jets core pieces are actually, in my opinion, more directly correlated to Tyrod Taylor than Brandon Cooks is. So a good Tyrod game matches up better with a Jets piece than with a Brandon Cooks, you know, usage. Boy, lost my train of thought there or train of words. Uh, um, but playing Tyrod plus one of the Jets pieces not only is a better way to build it, but is also going to be overlooked and low-owned compared to Tyrod plus Brandon Cooks. So starting point for this bottom-up build, Tyrod Taylor plus Jamison Crowder. The next thing I wanted to do on this roster was make sure I got Saquon Barkley on here. We touched on this in the NFL Edge. We touched on it in the player grid. We touched on it in the Oracle. So I won't spend too much time here, but Saquon, basically, it's just one of the rare opportunities to get a guy who would be priced at 8K if all the factors were working together. If we knew that the workload was going to be there, that the snap share was going to be there, that the offense was going to be called in such a way that it's built around him, he would be priced at about 8K and would be decently popular. But because of all the question marks, the popularity of this play is not where it would be even at an 8K price tag, and we get this huge discount. So if Saquon were 7,200, 7,400 on DraftKings, 7,500, we would have to strongly consider him and basically say, look, he's priced down a little bit. And because the field is likely to take a wait and see approach here, he's actually pretty plus EV. We would have to think about that even if he was in that 72, 73, 7,400 range. But with him all the way down at this 6,300 price tag, it very strongly compels you to consider him on every roster. Not to say that you're going to play him on every roster, but he has to be part of that decision-making matrix on every roster because of what he can do if the workload is there and because of the fact that the field is still going to be taking that wait-and-see approach. So if we had all of the answers resolved, 
If we knew that he was going to play 75 plus percent of the snaps and be heavily involved in the game plan, we would be dealing with 30 plus percent ownership at this price tag. Because of the question marks, those of us who are willing to embrace that uncertainty have the potential to get a severely underpriced player with plenty of upside. So with Darius Slayton and Kenny Galladay, the only healthy wide receivers for the Giants, with both of those guys having downfield roles and not a lot of short area nuance to their route running, and with them playing an Eagles team that forces the shallowest average depth of target in the entire NFL, it makes a lot of sense for Saquon to be emphasized in this game. Furthermore, I expect Freddie Kitchens to be calling the plays, and Freddie Kitchens did a great job emphasizing Nick Chubb, especially when he didn't have head coaching duties and was just able to focus on the offense, and was typically leaning run-heavy while only switching to pass-heavy if the game flow or the matchup dictated it. So in this spot, makes a lot of sense to expect Saquon to have a healthy workload. At 6,300, he's a very clear and obvious piece for the bottom-up build. The next thing I wanted to do was play off of the fact that I'm using, originally was Corey Davis and again now Jamison Crowder, as my Jets wideout on this roster, or my Jets piece on this roster, rather than using Ty Johnson. So Ty Johnson comes with some question marks, but again, Michael Carter is out. Ty Johnson is, you know, reading beat writer reports throughout the summer, there was actually the expectation that Ty Johnson was going to take over the lead in the backfield because he looked better than Michael Carter in camp in preseason. He looked significantly better than Tevin Coleman in camp in preseason. And Tevin Coleman is still hanging around, but the chances are relatively strong that it's going to be Ty Johnson leading the backfield rather than Tevin Coleman. Furthermore, it's rare that we see true 50-50 backfield splits. The Broncos are really the only team that does like a straight down the middle 50-50 backfield split. Typically what we see is 60-40, 65-35, or if we have like a like a true lead back like a DeAndre Swift is typically like 70-30. So expectations against price tag give us a pretty nice plus EV setup for Ty Johnson that it's reasonable to assume that he's going to see 60 to 65% of the snaps. It's reasonable to assume that he's going to be the main running back involved in the pass game. And it's reasonable to assume that he's going to see 10, 12, maybe even 14 carries in this spot. So if you give him 10, 12, 14 carries and four to six targets, that's a pretty good setup for a guy at only 4,300. However, on this roster, what we did was Jamison Crowder paired with Tyrod Taylor. And it would be a pretty bold bet to say that Jameson Crowder and Ty Johnson, they would combine for about 9K in salary. In fact, I think exactly 9K in salary. It's a, it's a bold bet to say that they combine for 40 plus points, which is basically what you would want at their combined salary. It, at least it would be a bold bet to say that without adding an additional Texans piece. So in that type of setup, you would want Tyrod Taylor plus Brandon Cooks plus Jameson Crowder plus Ty Johnson. So what I wanted to do on this roster was pivot to a different cheap running back. And I'm going to pivot to a running back who is going to go basically unowned on this slate and who popped up in several places in the Oracle from several several people mentioning him as a really interesting play this week and who is one of the best leverage pieces on the slate. And that is Naheem Hines. We have seen the Colts control games pretty much relentlessly this season. But we still don't know what will happen 
if and when they A, can't run the ball, which could very easily be the case against this Buccaneers front. Bucks are expected to get Vita Vea back this week. They should go right back to being one of the toughest, if not the toughest, run defenses in the NFL. And we have not seen what the Colts will do when they're forced to open up the offense and pass the ball more. What we do know from the past is that this is the role that Naheem Hines gets used in. I laid this out in, I think it was in the Oracle actually, but in in six of his last 22 games, Naheem Hines has gone for 17.5 or more DraftKings points. We have also seen him go for well over 25 multiple times. And, you know, look at his game logs this season, right? Four rushing attempts against Buffalo, two against Jacksonville, six against the Jets, one against Tennessee, eight against San Francisco, four against Houston, four against Baltimore, two against Miami, six against Tennessee, one against the Rams, nine against Seattle. Every game he's seeing carries. Let's look at his targets. Zero against Buffalo in a game where the bill where the Colts blew out the Bills. But four targets the week before that against the Jags, six targets against the Jets, five against Tennessee, three, two, one, two in in games before that, the Colts controlled, six targets against Tennessee, two against the Rams, eight against Seattle. Would it be unreasonable to expect five carries, and six or seven targets for Naheem Hines in this spot. Not at all. And have we seen that Naheem Hines on that type of volume can go for 20 plus points? Absolutely. Furthermore, if we compare Naheem Hines to the wide receivers priced around him, there aren't that many wide receivers who have his ceiling, who can go for 4x salary once every four games, once every three and a half games, and who can go for 25 plus points uh, in non-fluky types of outcomes. So Naheem Hines is a very interesting piece and is a very interesting way to differentiate basically any roster you build in such a way that provides direct leverage. We're always looking for those plays where we can say, not just, hey, here's a guy that's overlooked, but also here's a guy who is overlooked. And if he hits, he's directly hurting a popular player. So if Jonathan Taylor is going to be one of the more popular running backs in the slate, and if we already identified that mathematically his chances of justifying that status are relatively low, and then we can swing over to Naheem Hines and say, hey, look, if Taylor's disappointing, there's a chance that that means Hines is hitting. If Hines is hitting, that almost certainly means Taylor is disappointing. And so that gives us really nice leverage in this spot on a player who will probably have one-fifth or one-sixth the ownership of Jonathan Taylor. And again, would Naheem Hines go for 4X's salary only once out of every six times, once out of every seven times compared to Jonathan Taylor? Absolutely not. So Naeem Hines becomes a very interesting piece on this roster. That gives us Tyrod and Jameson Crowder, Saquon Barkley, and Naeem Hines. The next thing I wanted to do was get Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who, especially if Alan Lazard misses, is one of my favorite value plays on the slate. And even if Alan Lazard plays, MVS is a obviously a high upside piece at only 4,100. Uh, again, another piece that we dove into in the NFL Edge in the player grid, so I won't spend too much time on this one, but Marquez Valdez-Scantling plus Daryl Henderson basically allows us to bet on scoring accumulating in this game, but not coming through the exact players that everyone else is betting on scoring coming from. So if Cooper Cup and Devontae Adams are two of the highest owned 
players on this slate. And if Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Daryl Henderson end up being one of the tournament-winning pairings, well, not only does that mean that we're getting points from MVS and Henderson, but also that we are directly hurting Cup and Devontae rosters. Now, Cup and Devontae having solid reception and yardage games are probably part of what happens in a game in which MVS and Henderson are also piling up points. But because of the price tags on Cup and Devontae, they need everything to come together. They need the big plays to flow through them. They need the touchdowns to flow through them. They Really, they need a multi-touchdown game. And so betting on these guys, right? Like Cup can have a 25-point game, and that actually helps you to not have him on your roster. Devontae can have a 23, 24-point game, and it helps you to not have him on your roster. And him having that type of game could open up opportunities for MVS to have a 20-point game. Cup having a 25-point game could open opportunities for Henderson to have a 25-point game. And again, these guys getting the touchdowns would directly would be directly taking away touchdowns from those popular plays. So this gives us another spot where we have a correlated play and we get to pull one of these leverage levers to say, okay, you guys are all betting on this. We will instead bet on this. And if we're right, we're also hurting all of you at the same time. So Tyrod Taylor, Saquon Barkley, Naheem Hines, Jameson Crowder, Marquez Valdez, Scantling, Daryl Henderson. And that was how I started this roster. Uh, And somewhere in there, I put the Texans defense in. Texans defense is uh, painfully obvious this week. They are unsurprisingly expected to be one of the most popular defenses on this slate. So think about the strategy angles from there. Obviously, on this roster, we don't have to worry that much about the strategy angles because we're pulling so many leverage levers. You'll also notice that we have Tyrod and the Texans defense on this roster together. Not super concerned about that because, again, we're we're needing Tyrod to get to 20, 22, 25 points. He can easily do that in a game in which the Texans defense is forcing some turnovers, forcing some stalled drives from the Jets. In fact, it probably increases the chances of Tyrod putting up a 25-point score because he would have to drive the field less often and maybe get some short fields where he pops in a touchdown. Uh, The Texans defense, as I noted in the player grid this week, they rank 13th in adjusted sack rate and 7th in turnovers per drive, and they're playing Zach Wilson and the Jets. So it really doesn't make sense that they are priced at only 2.3K on DraftKings. Again, the field is going to be aware of that, but they end up on this bottom-up build. And... That left me with enough salary to do something that I'm obviously very interested in doing on my main roster this week, which is a Chris Godwin plus Rob Gronkowski pairing. Now, again, for the bottom-up build, we are keeping this at a 44K salary cap. So you'll notice that we have 6.1K in salary left over on this roster, which means we do not have enough salary to get up to Mike Evans. Given the ownership delta between Godwin and Evans currently, I would actually prefer Evans because again, I don't want to try to predict who's going to hit. I just want to say, hey, if the field is overrating the certainty of this player on this offense, I will swing over to this other player on this offense. But in this particular setup, we're doing enough differently. The salary cap constraints are kind of forcing our hand here. And there's another tight end I really like here in, in Pat Fryermuth. Pat Fryermuth is actually second in the entire NFL in targets inside the 10-yard line. Pat Fryermuth's targets and red zone targets basically make him look identical 
to Rob Gronkowski. And because of the way that the Steelers are forced to run this offense, right, they can't run the ball. And so they just throw the ball a lot, throw a lot of short passes. We're basically like the volume is very locked in. It would be difficult for Fryermuth to come out and have a three target game and just absolutely disappoint. So Fryermuth uh, parked right next to Gronkowski and salary is also very interesting to me. And I could have gone Fryermuth and Mike Evans. But what I really want to do is bet on the Bucks offense as a whole, their passing offense as a whole. And so getting Godwin plus Gronk, I'm basically able to say, look, if the Bucks have a big game passing, I potentially cover two spots at once and get 45 to 50 points between these two players who combine for about 11K in salary. So this roster gets wrapped up with Rob Gronkowski and Chris Godwin, giving us a starting point of Tyrod plus Jameson Crowder, giving us three running backs of Saquon Naheem Hines and Daryl Henderson. Daryl Henderson is paired with Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Chris Godwin and Rob Gronkowski are paired together. And we have the Texans defense rounding things out. That does it for this week's Angles podcast. It was a little bit of a bumpy ride in some spots there. It's been kind of a long week. But from an information standpoint, covered everything that we wanted to cover on a very unique and interesting slate. Remember. Don't overrate your own certainty, especially on a week like this. Instead, be willing to allow the field to overrate their own certainty and play off of that, gain the advantages that the field is just handing you and know that if we were able to play out this slate a hundred times, you would make a lot more money than the field over that large sample size by simply letting the math work in your favor. It's a much easier way to play. It's a much smarter way to play. It's much more plus EV, especially on a week like this. So pay attention to what the field is doing. Don't overrate your ability to predict things, but instead allow the field to overrate their ability to predict things, and you will put yourself in excellent position this week. With that, I will see you on the site throughout the remainder of Saturday, throughout Sunday morning. I will see you in your inbox on Sunday morning, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday evening.